This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2016. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15. And uh, while you're finding that, I'll just read a verse from Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verse 7. (coughs) Excuse me. There's a time to keep silent and a time to speak. There is a time to keep silent and a time to speak. Over these past two Sunday evenings, I've been sharing uh, some thoughts along the lines of the most terrible words that Jesus ever uttered and in the most costly words that Jesus ever uttered. Tonight I want to talk about those times when Christ kept silent, absolutely silent. Not that he had nothing to say, not that he was afraid to speak, but rather he chose deliberately, consciously to say absolutely nothing. And whenever Jesus refused to speak or remain silent, you can be sure there was a good reason for it. Now, this story we're about to read in a moment concerns the Syrophoenician woman. Uh, In Mark's uh, Gospel, chapter 7, he said that she was uh, a Greek. She was born a Greek, Syrophoenician. And uh, I don't know if you ever thought much about this, but Jesus' ministry on earth uh, was almost exclusively uh, to the Jew. In fact, he says to this woman, we'll see in a moment, He had not come except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And there are only two distinct places at least recorded, and as far as we know, where he actually healed Gentiles. Now we know that he had a great conversation with the woman at the well of Samaria, and, uh, and there was a tremendous outcome of that. But actually healing somebody... And this is one of them we'll read about in a moment in Matthew 15. And the other one is in Matthew 8, where the Roman centurion came to him, uh, looking a miracle for his servant. And Jesus says, I will go and heal him. And he says, no, you don't need to do that. Uh, All you need to do is just speak the word. Because I understand authority. I'm a man under authority myself, and I know if I say to my servants, do this or do that, they will do it, because I'm under authority, and they're under my authority. So all you have to do, Jesus, is just speak the word. You've got the authority. You've got the power. And Jesus marveled at that. He says, I have not found so great faith, no, not in all Israel. And as far as we know, those are the only two places in all of the Gospels where Jesus actually touched a Gentile. Why? Because he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now we know that eventually he came onto his own. His own received him not. They rejected his Messiahship. They put him on a cross. They crucified him. And we know that after that, and as we begin to read into the book of Acts, then the gospel then went to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, by and large, received the gospel. And and we know, uh, particularly in chapter 10 of Acts, where the whole incident were Cornelius, the house of Cornelius, and Peter went there, and the Holy Spirit came, and so forth. But even just before that, we know that uh, when Philip went down to, to Samaria, and had a great revival there, and then he was taken away to the Ethiopian eunuch in Gaza. Uh, So we know that it was always God's plan to reach the Gentiles, otherwise we wouldn't be sitting here tonight. But it took a while. In fact, you know, even after Pentecost, it took a while before the, the disciples actually fully understood. And even though Jesus told them in that 40 days that it would be Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth, but they were quite content just reaching the Jew. And it took a lot of persecution for the, for the, for the gospel to be spread to the ends of the earth before that happened. So I'm saying all of that so that to give you the context of this particular incident with this woman uh, this Syrophoenician woman. In verse 21 of Matthew 15, 
Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Cana came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her, Not a word. Now you know why. Because he sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's not obligated in any way to speak to this woman. She's not of the Abrahamic covenant. She's not a Jewess. She's a Canaanite. She's Syrophoenician. So he says, nothing. Absolutely nothing. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. And he said to them, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, this implies that this went on for some time. How long, we don't know. But she followed after them. She wasn't going to give up. And she pestered the life out of them to the point where the disciples would get tired of it and they really wanted Jesus to turn around and rebuke this woman and, and get her off their backs because it seemed to be this for a while that everywhere they went, she just followed them, she kept crying out, she kept crying out, she kept crying out, and they just got tired of it. And Jesus wasn't saying anything, nothing. But we understand why. She wasn't of the covenant. He wasn't sent to her. He was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Now, you know, at, at, at that point, she could have, in her mind, thought, you know, he's awful rude. He's so uncouth. He's so uncaring. He's so dismissive. He doesn't even speak to me. He's totally ignoring me. And perhaps those thoughts went through her mind. We don't know. But what we do know is that she wasn't going to give up. She was not going to give up. She was absolutely persistent to the point where she was going to bother everybody to get what she wanted. And she says, Lord, help me. He answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Ah. For a long time he said nothing. And if that wasn't bad enough in her mind, now he's saying something that is sounds so insulting. Imagine being likened onto a dog, even a little dog. I think at that point, if it had been us, I think we would have given up there and then. I think we would have thought, you know what? I can't do this anymore. Uh, I, I can't be treated this way. I'm a human being. I deserve more than this. I think that's what we would have thought. But this woman didn't think this. Because in that long silence where he said nothing. Faith was building. Faith was rising. I wonder if my faith or your faith would have been rising at that time. I don't think so. I don't think so. And I think at the end of it, when Jesus said to her, if he had said that to us, if we had been there, I think that would have been the finish. I think we had walked away disheartened, disillusioned, angry, bitter, and all the rest of it, but not this woman. This woman was being tested to the nth degree. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And then she had this absolutely brilliant answer. Brilliant. She says, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. What an answer. In spite of the silence, in spite of the seeming rejection, 
in spite of what looked on the surface an insult, she was not going to be denied. Now, it does not teach us that we should never give up. Because you know what happens sometimes? If God doesn't speak to us and he doesn't seem to be answering our prayer, sometimes we get a little bit upset about that. And sometimes people get very, very annoyed and they get angry with God. Why aren't you speaking? Why aren't you answering? Why aren't you changing my situation? But not this woman. In fact, it had the opposite effect. Her faith was growing. Her determination was even greater. She became more persistent. And Jesus said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. This silence of the Savior produced faith. And if we think God's not speaking to us, or somehow he has forgotten about us or ignoring us and not changing and not doing and not answering, we'll need to look at this little woman and say we're not going to give up. Maybe, maybe we're being tested. Uh, Maybe it's a test just to see how far we will go. And this woman, bless her, she just would not quit. And what an answer. What a great answer. And Jesus at that point could not resist her faith. He couldn't resist it. He had to do something. He would not let this woman down. She had come too far. She had such great faith. She would not give up. She was so persistent. Jesus decided, even though he was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, for this woman, she was going to get her heart's desire. And so there's times when there will be silence and it will seem like somehow God is holding back, that he's not really interested, that he doesn't really care. But don't believe it. Take encouragement from this little woman. And then in John chapter 8, John chapter 8 is the, the story of the woman taken in adultery. All these are familiar stories. In Proverbs 17, 28, it says, Even a fool, when he holds his peace, is counted as wise, and he that shuts his lips as a man of understanding. James 3, 2. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man or a mature man, and able to bridle the whole body. Now, in John chapter 7, which obviously we're not going to read, But had we read John chapter 7, you'd find that Jesus was uh, attending the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles, everywhere that Jesus went, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all his detractors would be there uh, to try to trip him up, to catch him out in some way. Uh, And that just was continuous throughout his ministry. And it was no different at the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, they got so angry that they sent guards, the Pharisees sent their their guards to go and arrest Jesus. But they didn't. And when they come back, they why did you not arrest him? Why did you not bring him to us? And he says, never man spoke like this man. (laughs) And so at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus goes up to the Mount of Olives, and we assume he's gone up there to pray, and probably prayed all night as he was wont to do. And then the next day, he comes down from the Mount of Olives, goes through the valley, up into the temple of the Lord. And as he goes into the temple, the first place he'd go into would be the court of the Gentiles. And obviously the Gentiles were allowed to be in the court of the Gentiles. But then he'd go through Gate Beautiful, and he'd go into the court of the woman. And the court of the woman, the Gentiles would not be allowed in that. They would be solely only allowed in the court of the Gentiles. But the court of the woman, it would be both woman and men of Israel would be there and could be there. And Jesus seemed to favor that place. Remember that was the place where the, where the treasury was, where Jesus watched them putting their offerings in and he commanded the little woman and so forth. 
And beyond that would be the court of the men of Israel. And the court of the men of Israel, the woman of Israel wouldn't be allowed in there. And beyond that again would be where the priests and the Levites, uh, where they would serve, and not everybody could go in there, only the priests and the Levites. So the court of the woman was the place where Jesus seemed to favor to go into. You must remember now, this is just at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, so the whole city would be full of, of uh, pilgrims, spiritual tourists, and they'd come from all over the empire. And they would spend their days there, and probably some of them realizing that they may never ever get back to Jerusalem again because of age or infirmity, they'd want to go and see one last time to go and see the great, magnificent temple. And it was absolutely beautiful beyond words. And so you can be sure, and these were big courts, you can be sure there'd be probably hundreds of people there. And Jesus is there, and he assumes the posture of a rabbi. He, he, he's seated. Uh, a rabbi would, would seat himself, and those who wanted to listen and be taught would gather around with him. That was the custom. And uh, while that was happening... Uh, we'll see here in, in John chapter 8. Let me just read a little bit. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came down, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. Now you should underline the word scribes there because this is, the, I think, the only time that John actually uses the word scribes. The other gospel writers use it a lot, but John doesn't. But he's specifically using it here because you have to understand the religious groupings. The Pharisees were the separated ones. They were the fundamentalists of their day. Uh, they, <laughs> I mean, they, <laughs> they were really hardliners religiously. And then there was the, the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, they were richer, they were more wealthy, but they were very, very liberal. They, they really didn't really believe in the supernatural, did not believe in the resurrection at all. So there's quite a difference between those two groups. Yet they would unite against Christ. And then, uh, above and beyond that, of course, there was the, the, the Essenes. The Essenes were ascetic. They would live out in the mountains. They wouldn't even mix with the Pharisees or the Sadducees or anybody. And then there would be the Herodians. The Herodians were more political. They would be those who would support the, the dynasty of Herod. And then there would be the Zealots, who would be the paramilitaries of their day, who would want to go out and kill the, the Roman occupiers. So there was all these groupings. But the religious groupings, all of them would unite against Christ. And John specifically mentions scribes here. Now, the scribes were those who were the guardians of the law. Uh, and particularly, the work that they did was highly meticulous in copying out the law, the, the Torah, the, the, five, the scrolls, the five books of the law, Moses' uh, law. So they would copy that out meticulously. It would take weeks and months and sometimes a year or more just to get a scroll copied. And if a mistake was made, they had to do certain things directly. It was just a, an intense job to do. And these were the ones who understood that even the very minutiae of the law, every jot and tittle, these were the experts in the law. Now, John specifically writes that to let us know that what's coming is going to be a challenge by the law. So while Jesus was up the mountain praying, these Pharisees and scribes were plotting. And they must have stayed up all night figuring it out a way. We must find a way to trick Jesus. We must find a way to, to catch him out some way. And the best thing we can do is catch him out with the law. Or so they thought. So do you under, are you with me in that? You understand what I'm saying? All right, let's continue. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had sent her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. That's pretty brutal, isn't it? In the very act, they knew exactly who she was. They knew where she lived. They knew what was going on in that house. They knew when to catch her. No doubt they had their spies to do it. And they caught her in the very act. 
And they dragged her through the streets of Jerusalem. And they dragged her to the temple. And they dragged her through the court of the Gentiles. And they pulled her through the beautiful gate. And they dragged her all the way over to Jesus there in the court of the woman. And they flung her at his feet. Can you imagine the humiliation and the shame, the embarrassment, and the fear of that moment? And that poor woman was probably just dressed in her, in her nightgown. It must have been awful, excruciating for this woman. Everybody looking at her. How embarrassing would that be? But notice there's no man. The man should have been dragged too. He was culpable. We say it takes two to tango. And there was two tangoing, that's for sure. So he should have been there too. Why wasn't he? We can only survive. Survive. Maybe it was one of their lot. <laughs> if they really cared about the law, if they really cared about God's honor, he would have been coming too because both of them, according to Leviticus, both of them should be stoned. Not one of them, but both of them. Now Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned. And that's true. Absolutely. That's what the law says in Leviticus 20. For sure. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But what do you say? As far as they were they concerned, this was, this was brilliant. They had sat up all night working this out. We've got him. Because whatever he says now, it's lose-lose for him, and it's win-win for us. If he says, you're right, boys, that's what the law says, go out and stone her. And they're going to say, but wait a minute, you're a hypocrite. Because you're preaching forgiveness and mercy and pardon and grace. Now you're saying, go out and stone her. Or if he said, no, forgive her. Show her grace, pardon her. They're going to say, but what about the law? You're ignoring the law. You're not fulfilling this law. And all of that is true. So you can see in their minds, their thing, this is that we have really, really got them this time. See, the scribes are involved. These are the ones who know the ins and outs, every jot and tittle of the law. And they thought, this is it. We have got them now. Whatever he says, he's going to lose and we're going to win. But what they had forgotten, that a wiser than Solomon was standing there. <laughs> a wiser than Solomon. He knew the law too. So how's he going to get out of this? Look what happens. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Notice he said nothing. Nothing. Not a word. Nothing. Brilliant. <laughs> Only Jesus could have thought of this. And this is one of those moments in Scripture where he is totally silent totally silent and he just gets down and he starts writing with his finger on the ground as though he did not hear them now I wish the Holy Spirit had told us what he wrote it's tantalizing but he doesn't tell us and it's not always wise just to to use conjecture but I think, all things being equal, because this is about the law, and an article of the law, I think we might be able to assume that what he wrote also concerned the law. He's not just writing something random here. He knows exactly what he's writing. You remember how that God of Mount Sinai, when he gave Moses the, the tablets of clay with the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, written by the finger of God. So I wonder, did Jesus start to quote the law? I wonder, did he write, 
Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But he said nothing. He just wrote. And, and I can imagine at that point, that crowd standing there was, was straining to see, what's he writing? What's he, get out of the way. Get your big head out of the road. I can't see. What's he writing? And imagine there was such excitement to see, what is he writing? And I always like to say at this point, when Jesus bent down and started to write, everybody was looking at him, not her. Before that, everybody was looking at her. And I'm sure that she covered her face with her hands because it would be hugely embarrassing. But now everybody's looking at him, not her. You see, if, if, I, if I'm standing here speaking to you, if I just get down and oh, kind of get up again after this, if I just get down on my knee and started to do that, every eye is on me, isn't it? And what graciousness of the master, what gentleness and loveliness to take the spotlight of her the condemned woman and brought it onto him. And so he's writing and he's writing and he's writing. Silent, not a word. And they're looking at it and they're wondering, what's he writing? Ah, it's the law. It's the law. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear so when they continued asking him, so this went on for a while. When they continued asking him, he raised himself up. Now it's time to speak. He raised himself up and said, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Now here's something else you have to understand about the Old Testament law. In the mouth of two or three witnesses let every word be established. One person as a witness could not cause somebody to be put to death. There was a safeguard in this. It had to be two as minimum or three, but not one, before the death sentence could be carried out. We don't have that in, in our law. Our law is good, but we don't even have that. But God put it in as a safeguard. And so, there was many accusers there. There was more than one or two or three witnesses. There might have been a dozen of them. They would make sure there was more than just one witness, because they knew the law. Just in case it was fired at them, they knew the law. Well, we've got witnesses. We've got lots of them here. We all saw it. We caught her in the very act. But Jesus wrote, Let him who is without sin among you throw a stone at her first. You see, those who accused, the accusers, the witnesses, the accusers, they had to throw the first stone. Then everybody else could join in but they had to throw the first stone. And when Jesus says, he is without sin among you, I, I kind of get the feeling that he was particularly thinking of immorality, because that's what she's being accused of. That's what they want to stone her to death for. That's what the law says. So I kind of think that that's what he's honing in on here. Let him who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her. In other words, you're accusing this woman, but make sure you're not guilty of it first yourself, because otherwise you shouldn't be accusing her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, not who read it, but who heard it, being convicted by their conscience. What did they hear? Well, you could say, well, I heard Jesus saying he is without sin. But they heard their conscience speaking, loud and clear. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. 
the accusers, all the condemners, all the witnesses, all of them, one by one by one by one, left. And we must assume that they were also guilty of sin, maybe of that particular sin. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Now, I'm not sure whether that just means that all those accusers left, but the crowd was still there and Jesus and the woman. Maybe everybody left because everybody is guilty of sin, aren't they? And maybe everybody's conscience spoke that day and they heard it. But here's Jesus and this woman. She's standing in the midst. When Jesus raised himself up and saw that no one, saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? <clears throat> now remember, Jesus must not break the law. Jesus says, I'm not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. I, I didn't come to break the law. I've come to fulfill it. So he must not break the law. So he says, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? Where's the condemners? Where are the witnesses? And she said, no one, Lord. You see, without the accusers, without the condemners, without the witnesses, she could not be put to death. So the law's not broken here. They just refused to continue because Jesus had touched their conscience and they left. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Now, he couldn't condemn her because he wasn't a witness and he wasn't an accuser. So he couldn't be a condemner. So the law is still intact. <laughs> Isn't this brilliant? This is the master at work. Every time those religious police get on his case, he had an answer every single time. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I don't condone what you've done. Do not do this ever again. Go and sin no more. Now, he knew that nobody's sinless. <laughs> nobody's perfect. But it's that particular sin. Do not do this ever again. And though we have no evidence, I tend to believe that she never, ever committed that sin again. She came so close to being stoned to death, and now she's free. But it was that moment of silence. Before we move on, let me just mention this quickly. When Moses was up that mountain, and God, with the finger of God, wrote those Ten Commandments. And he was up there a long time, and you know what happened when he was up there. His, his, his brother, Aaron the high priest, made a golden calf. They all danced around it. This is the gods that brought him out of Egypt. Moses came down, he was angry, and he smashed those commandments. And later on, God wrote them again for him. And this time, the unbroken law he put safely into the Ark of the Covenant. And the lid of the Ark of the Covenant is called the mercy seat. That golden lid where the cherubims are on, whose wings touch each other and they look down at the mercy seat. That place where the high priest once a year had to go in and sprinkle blood upon it and in front of it. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And that's the same word where we get mercy seat. Jesus is literally the mercy seat for our sins. And it covered the unbroken law. The law was still intact, but mercy covered it. Mercy triumphs over justice, over judgment, over judgment. But it was that silence of Jesus that brought this woman forgiveness. These times when Jesus would just say nothing conveyed much more than mere words could convey. It spoke volumes and the silence of the Savior produced forgiveness. 
better go quickly. I haven't been preaching long messages in a good while, sure, haven't I? I've been very good, haven't I? I've been behaving myself. <laughs> in Luke chapter 23, Jesus is standing before Herod Antipas, or Antipas, however you want to pronounce that, A-N-T-I-P-A-S. Now, this particular Herod uh, was the one who had murdered John the Baptist. And uh, in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29, uh, this particular Herod had a fascination for John the Baptist, believed he was a man of God and a true prophet. And he was fascinated with his ministry. But John the Baptist challenged him because he had stolen his brother's wife, Herodias. And John challenged him and said, this is not right before God. And he knew it wasn't right. Now he's a wicked, evil man, this. He's a powerful man. His father was Herod the Great who killed all those babies, those boys under two in Bethlehem. He's the uncle of Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, who later on would kill James, the brother of John, with the sword and wanted to kill Peter also. So this, this tree had bad fruit. And the roots of this tree went all the way back to Esau, Jacob's brother, who despised his birthright, who was an irreverent man and who gave birth and son Edom and the Edomites come out of this. So, so there's bad fruit all the way down this tree right to its very roots. This is the one that Jesus says, go tell that fox, Herod. <laughs> and Jesus had been before Pilate and, 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 and in Pilate trying him and questioning him he really didn't want to deal with Jesus. He, he, he knew these Jews. He, he knew they were dirty dogs. He knew they were, they were trying to kill this good man. His wife had a dream the night before, have nothing to do with this just man. And he really didn't want to do this. But he was a weak man, Pilate. And he knew his job was at jeopardy. I mean, he had made so many mistakes in his jurisdiction that Rome had threatened him, one more mistake and you're out, boy. And, and he knew that, and the Jews knew that. So they had him over a barrel. But when he heard that Jesus came from Galilee, ah, Galilee, that's Herod's jurisdiction, and he carted him off to Herod. Now, Herod and Pilate hated each other's guts. We don't know why, but they just did. Maybe it was to do with power and influence or whatever it was, but they just did not like each other. But by the way, from that moment on, they did like each other. It's amazing the people who who are against each other, but they'll come together to fight Christ and to fight Christianity. You see that today. You see politicians, and you see scientists, and you see educators, and you see broadcasters, and you see them all, and they maybe hate each other's guts, but when it comes to Christianity, it comes to Jesus, they're all united against them. And so here he is in Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, verse 6. Then when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked, Is the man a Galilean? As soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Now, this fascination he had with John the Baptist, when John challenged him, his wife Herodias despised John. And there was a big party. And, and Herod said, Herodias got her daughter to dance before him, and he was so enamored by this, he says, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. Anything you want, I'll give to you. And she said, well, go and ask my mother. Muller says, go back to him and say, I want John the Baptist's head in a platter today, right now. 
And it tells us because of his ego and his pride and all the big wigs was at that party, all the leaders under him was there, he could not and would not back down. Even though he regretted saying this, but he could not back down. And sure enough, he sent the executioner. And within moments, John the Baptist's head was on the platter. So this is the type of man we're dealing with. But here's the thing. When Jesus came on the scene, and the whole country was talking about Jesus, you know what he thought? This is John the Baptist has come back from the dead. He's coming to haunt me. <laughs> That's what he thought. John the Baptist has risen from the dead. He's doing all these miracles. He's come to haunt me. I must see this Jesus. That's why he was exceedingly glad. But I want him to prove, is this really him? Is this really John the Baptist coming back from the dead? Well, let me see you do some miracle. This man spiritually was so dark and so black spiritually, he was totally shot through. There was nothing in the man. He was beyond redemption. This is the murder of John the Baptist. And so Jesus is taken to him. And he's exceedingly glad. And he wanted to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words. But note this. But he answered him nothing. Nothing. Not a word spoken. Nothing. That must have angered Herod all the more. Does he not realize who I am? I'm the great Herod. This is my jurisdiction. If I want to see a miracle, it's your job to show me a miracle. But Jesus just stood there and said nothing. The silence of the Savior. This man wanted a spiritual sideshow. Prove yourself. Show me some sign. Show me some miracle. Then I'll believe who you are. And when people do that to God, very often the reply is silence. Nothing. Nothing. You know, over the years there has been atheists who have shook their puny fist at the Almighty and said, God, someone's done it in front of a crowd and says, God, there is no God, and I'll prove it to you, because I'm going to blaspheme him. And I'm going to stand here, and I'm going to shake my fist, and I'm going to say, God, strike me dead. And he doesn't. And they say, ha-ha, there, I've proven it. There is no God. I demanded that he strike me dead. But he didn't, because there is no God. But God's silence is his sentence. And God's silence to this man was his sentence. He was asking him over and over many, many questions, many words. And Jesus answered him nothing. His silence was a sentence. And Jesus knew he had crossed the line. There would be no forgiveness. There'd be no pleading for his soul. There'd be no coaxing of him. Nothing. Nothing. Silence. And a silence was a sentence. You know, there's lots of people today who mock God and scoff at the idea of God. And God answers them, nothing. He says, nothing. And sometimes we say, why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't he strike one or two of them down dead? But he answers nothing. His silence is a sentence. Oh, one day, one day he'll have plenty to say. Because one day they'll stand before Jesus and he won't be their savior, he'll be their judge. And he will be doing the talking. But right now, it's silence. So never get upset and worried if God's not running about striking people down, he's mocking and scoffing. There's come a day they'll stand before him and he will deal with them. But a silence now is a sentence. And the chief priest and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. When Herod and his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him, now he's revealing his true heart. 
and arrayed him with a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. The silence of a savior. That silence brought condemnation. But then finally, Matthew 27. Regarding Pilate. Matthew 27, verse 11. Just a few moments, we'll be finished. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, that's Pilate, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered, Nothing. Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him, not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Ah, if you were to read all four Gospels, you would see that actually Jesus and Pilate had quite a lengthy conversation. But the time he remained silent was whenever they accused him. And they brought the false accusations against Jesus. And all of his trials were mock trials. There was no truth in any of it. None whatsoever. Lies and more lies and lies upon lies. And all of those accusations, Jesus, being wiser than Solomon, we've already seen, could have easily have dealt with them and answered them and have done with it. And if necessary, could have called 10,000 angels. But he stood silent. Actually, at that moment, he was fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 700 years earlier. Isaiah 53, 7, you know it well. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He has brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And in that silence, it brought us our salvation. He did not defend himself. He could have, but he didn't. He could have got to the point, you know, where he could have said, I'm tired of this. I've had enough of this. It's not worth it. They're not worth it. Where are the multitudes that I healed where are all the people that I fed the five? Where are they? Not one of them is here with me. They've all left. Even my disciples, even one of them even cursed and swore that he never knew me. But he didn't. He stood as a sheep before her shears is dumb, and he said nothing. And that silence was our salvation. He took it for us. All the condemnation all the accusation, all the lies, all of that, he took that. And it put him on the cross. It put him on the cross. Because Pilate being the card that he was, he actually didn't want to do this. But rather than lose his job and lose his place of influence, he said, okay, take him and crucify him. The Jews could not put anybody to death without the Roman authority to do it. By the way, they stoned Stephen, and they did that, which was illegal. They had no right to do that, by the way. They would have had to go to the Roman authorities to allow it, but they were so angry with Stephen, they did it anyway. But not with Jesus. They didn't want him stoned. They wanted him crucified. They wanted him to face the most horrible death known to a human being. That's what they really wanted. But all those accusations that Jesus could annihilate one by one by one, but he didn't. He kept silent, said nothing for our salvation. This is the Savior we serve. 
This is the wisdom of God. This is the grace of God. This is the love of God. This is the mercy of God for us. He said nothing. And he went to that cruel cross and he died in my place and in your place tonight. Isn't he a wonderful Savior? Isn't he a precious Lord to us? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we must stop and just give you thanks. We are amazed at your life on earth. What a life you lived. What examples you gave. But above and beyond all of that, what a life you sacrificed for us. So we say, thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for those times when you said nothing. Not that you had nothing to say, but you chose to do that. And we're blessed because of it. And we're encouraged because of it. So we give you thanks. We bless you for this. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for this life that's imparted to each of us tonight to be called your sons and your daughters. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.